going on, everybody? This is the ChondroCast, the podcast for green tree pythons and the people that keep them. I'm your host, Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. Enjoy the show. It's like my my sinuses and stuff are fine outside of the four walls of this house, but as, uh, as soon as I get in, it's just like anytime we record, my nose gets all stuffy and my throat gets scratchy. And... Yeah, I've been allergic to cats since I was little. I've never been allergic to cats, but I know it's not. It doesn't take much to get sensitized to them. Yeah. But we are uh, we're. We are going now. So this is episode two of the Chondrocast. I'm here with Mr. Brian Fisher of Front Range Arboreals. How's it hanging? Pretty good. Pretty good. Just sitting in the snake room, staying warm. Yeah. Are you getting? You're getting snow there. I'm assuming. Um, not today. Maybe tonight. Uh-huh. Um. Yeah. Here, here more than anywhere else. I, you know, we were just talking about, I lived in the Northeast, I lived in the Southeast, um, out here in the West, the weather is definitely much more unpredictable. They might say there's like a chance of flurries and then we'll get six inches of snow. How do you like living in South Florida? Um, South Florida itself was pretty cool. After living there for five years, for me, it was kind of like Groundhog's Day. <laughs> you wake up it's it's still warm it's still sunny there it rains every day yep the three o'clock much. thunderstorm for an hour and then it goes away yeah so and you know my wife and i are both from pennsylvania originally so we kind of missed seasons you know i i snowboard and do some winter activities so we missed all that and um i found at least for type of career that i do and my wife kind of had this experience and the job outlook isn't that that phenomenal in South Florida, so we we kind of decided to move on after after about five years of it. Yeah, I got family in West Palm Beach, and I always enjoyed going and hanging out there. But it, you know, it is definitely not a place that I I have any desire to live. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, don't get me wrong; it's definitely got pluses, but um, it, yeah, after five years, it kind of ran its course, you know. Mm-hmm. Do you like the herping out there more? Out of all the places you've been, what's been the best place that you've enjoyed, uh, um, if you've done any? Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess, I mean, I mean, definitely the, the the big draw about it is you can get species that are all over the world. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, in uh, in South Florida, I mean, got iguanas, Nile monitors, chameleons, day geckos. There's all sorts of crazy stuff down there berms obviously so it's definitely interesting you don't you know there's always the the possibility of finding something that you're like oh i didn't realize that was out here yeah um there's a new species being found every every year yeah i have seen some Um, of those veils though that people find out there and some of those veils are huge yeah yeah i mean it's a perfect environment for a lot of a lot of tropical herbs Mm mm-hmm 
And that's what I explained. So, I get a lot of people who ask, you know, they hear that I'm a snake guy when I'm at I'm at work. Uh, so I, I work at a cigar shop, and uh, a lot of my day involves sitting around and talking to people. And a lot of them, you know, they see that I have a snake tattoo, and so they start asking questions. And they're like, "Oh, you know, Florida—they got all those invasive boa constrictors and stuff." And I'm like, "Yeah, Florida's got a lot of problems right now." And I said, "It just—it, you know, I explained to them that it just by chance." Florida happens to be like prime habitat for just about anything uh, that's yeah, semi-tropical I mean, or tropical. Yeah, people like to make a big deal out of the berms and stuff, like uh, you know, because they're they're the obvious big scary monster in the Everglades. But yeah. you know, I do right now. I do water treatment for a living, mm-hmm. and their their water situation there is real messed up. It it's worse than any any of the invasives that they have there. Um, In terms of just like cleanliness, just just like environmental. Oh, okay. um, you, you know they got like all this farm runoff and uh, yeah, it's it's not a good situation. Hmm. Um, you know, not to mention that uh, you know my personal opinion, feral cats and arguably brown and old. <laughs> Yeah. Might even be worse, <laughs> worse for the biodiversity there than berms. But uh, hmm. yeah. So what? Yeah, do you... I mean, I don't, I don't know how much time you spent down there, but brown and old, like it's hard, at least where I was, to find green and olds. Yeah, there. I definitely saw probably uh, more browns than I saw any of the greens or anything else. <clears throat> yeah, so they, they, they just everywhere. Outcompeted them to the nth degree. So in terms of what you're what you're currently keeping, are you keeping just green trees, or do you kind of have some other odds and ends? Um, I've got a pretty small collection, um, and that's mostly just kind of a result of moving so frequently. Right. Um, but I've got let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven adult chondros, and. One one two year old, two babies. I got one egg that's about to hatch like any second now. And I got a pair of popwing carpets. Ooh. Uh a pair of splodis plotus, the Yeah. Suriname, Diana, Tiger Rats. Oh, those look fun. Um and then I've got a few ornate day geckos. Mm-hmm. Um that's about it right now. Is that one egg just... Is it a chondro egg? How'd you end it with just one egg? Yeah. Uh, well, that was the only fertile egg. I had 13 slugs along with that. Mm. Um, and I'll, I'll eventually post pictures of it, but it was a pretty gnarly egg. Huh. Do you prefer having a smaller collection like that compared to something bigger? Yeah, lot, especially I mean, like in chondros, because I I kind of have the opinion that with chondros, kind of having a smaller collection might be more of the way to go than rather than something you know massive. Yeah, I I mean I I kind of feel that way um, about any species of any animal for the mm-hmm. most part. Um, you know I don't know how far you want to get back into my background, but prior to prior to being in water treatment, I. Uh, I was the manager for uh, a wholesale uh, saltwater fish import business in oh, South Florida. Okay. Cool. Um, so we would bring in like 
anywhere from 3,000 to 5,000 fish a week. Mm-hmm. Um, also, like live corals and invertebrates. Right. And we, you know, most of it's wild caught stuff. You bring it in, you treat it, and then we would ship it to like retail stores and public aquariums and whatnot. And there's definitely there's definitely a point of diminishing returns with a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, at a certain point, you can't really get eyes on an animal for very long each day. And, you know, in particular with a lot of these tropical animals and they're you know, pretty sensitive and they hide illness and stuff. It's just, I don't think, I, I think there's a point where, you know, there is too many. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the way herpetoculture is these days, everybody just, you know, they, I think we talked about this a little bit via, um, via messenger, you know, I, I think, um, you know, I don't know if it was completely that ball pythons were to blame, but at some point numbers got conflated with experience yeah, or expertise. Yeah. <clears throat> and I find it's actually kind of the opposite. Some of the guys that are only keeping like eight or 10 animals have, you know, if you look at percentage of success, success um, with how many pairings they do and all that, they actually have more success per year than than a lot of these bigger guys do. Yeah, just because they were they were able to devote more attention to those handful of animals rather than right. Yeah, and, trying and to spread you know, themselves paying, a little too thin. Yeah, they're paying a lot more attention to the behavior. They they notice stuff more because they're you know. They're looking at a few animals as opposed to hundreds that might be in tubs. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that's another thing. Me personally, I, I'm not a big fan of tubs just because you can't really see the animal without disturbing it. Mm-hmm. Um, not not that you can't keep them just as good in a tub, but uh, from a uh, observation perspective, you just can't you can't do it the same way you can in a cage. So how do you have all yours set up? Uh, I got a variety of different cages, PVC, OFIL, Visions, but, uh, you know, they're all cages. They're all front opening. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see in all of them. Uh, I do have a small rack that I use for, like, the babies, but um, as soon as they're kind of a little bit bigger, I move them into cages. Yeah. Because I'm kind of torn between the whole thing, too. I mean, I, I keep... Um, how many of mine? I currently have, as far as chondras go, three. No, I have six. Um, three of them are in tubs. Four of them are in tubs. Two of them are in PVC cages. And uh, the way I use the tubs, they're not in a rack system. I, me and Jake, who I do the Herpeticulture podcast with, we do a, what we call the poor man's rack. And it's mm-hmm. basically one of those metal chef's racks. Um, right. But we have one of the, or we run the, uh, we get the four foot long ones, and then we run the Reptile Basics Ultra Therm Pads, the length of it. Mm-hmm. And then we just have the individual tubs sitting on that. And so we kind of, I, di- I started doing that sort of on the basis of kind of like what Harlan talks about, where if you have a six snake and it's in a rack system, you kind of have nowhere to put it. But with this... I can just as easily take it off the shelf and move it into my room. You know, it works just as well. If I have any neonates that are being weird and they need to be blacked out for whatever reason, then I can just, you know, put some paper. I take a, just an empty cardboard box and open it up. So it's, you know, how you can stick your hand through it when you first put a box together. 
right just putting, yeah. that, putting that around it and <clears throat> calling it a day so that's been working out pretty well for me but I can definitely understand why Rex you know for neonates especially it uh, helps them out a little bit as far as security goes and, and everything like that but and I also like the naturalistic thing but that's also when you have a kind of a bigger collection you know it's not exactly something feasible and I'm, I'm much more of a sterile you know keep it keep it simple stupid kind of kind of guy yeah I'm, <clears throat> I'm kind of the opposite all, all my kids have live plants and the whole deal um you know i'm the longer i i keep these things the more i kind of focus on air quality mm-hmm. um you've sent me pictures of your stuff before i think yeah probably yeah you got uh, like you know, pothos and stuff in there yeah right yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah, there's a bunch of pothos. Um, I try to keep a good amount of ventilation, and then I uh, I humidify the room with like an evaporative humidifier. Yeah. Um. And so that that's kind of the way I do it. I I try not to have anything stagnant, and I try to get a good amount of air exchange. Um, I really think you know I, a lot of people will talk about you know sealing stuff up. To maintain humidity, right? I, I, I really think that's the wrong way to go. You know, these things are living up in the trees. They're they're exposed to a lot of air movement, mm-hmm. um, and you know, think about it this way: Do you do you think that uh, any epiphytic plants would survive in most of the, the the cages that people keep condors in? No. Like unless they had the, the background or some way of mounting them, you know. Well, but I mean, like air air movement. Oh is yeah, very yeah, yeah. For, for those things, um, along with high humidity, uh, and that's you know, I, I kind of try to. The plants are as much as for aesthetics as they are for telling me if I'm maintaining the cage too wet or too dry or any of that. Because if the plants aren't thriving, then uh, you know it, it's like a, a non-starter at that point. Yeah, it's kind of an indicator of what's happening. Right. That's, yeah. That's, yeah, that's um, a good way of thinking about it. I, did. I wouldn't have really thought about that. You know, <clears throat> and, you know, things like pothos and stuff are well documented, at, you know, doing very good for air quality, scrubbing the air and stuff, mm-hmm. um, taking stuff out. So, hmm. um, yeah, I, I like to have live plants in there. I'm, I'm kind of moving towards, uh, you know, doing bigger, bigger enclosures, more live plants and less animals over time. It's not a bad strategy to have. Yeah, yeah. I I can guarantee you that I enjoy my animals more than most people that keep them in plastic boxes. <laughs> yeah, and you know that kind of goes back to the, the how many you know are you stre- spreading yourself too thin by having too many, uh, you know, either too soon or just on hand period, and I know. Personally, like I have, I have times where you know I'm, I get caught up in the day to day of you know working and stuff like that, and just kind of being in and out of the room and doing what I need to do, and then kind of moving on with my days off or whatever. But there are still times where you know I pull out my big Brettles mail or something, and you just kind of take a moment and stop and realize that you don't really appreciate them as much as you should be. And yep. uh, it's yeah. it's super easy just to get caught up in the the day to day, you know, the the grind. Yeah, I mean, for sure, and definitely, you know, with um, with the advent of Facebook and how this hobby has kind of moved 
move to that from the forums and everything, you know, you're constantly inundated with people posting all these pictures of newly hatched babies, their new additions and everything. You're like, man, like I, I want something new. I mm-hmm. want to hatch more eggs. Um, but every, every time I've kind of moved, moved towards increasing my numbers, I just find that I have less time to, to actually do anything other than just clean cages. And yeah. that's not fun. <laughs> Yeah, at some point it does get to be almost a chore of sorts. I know when I was dealing with Cresteds, uh, when I was breeding those, like Sundays were my cleaning days and like half my Sunday would be eaten up just by cleaning tubs. And there were, you know, towards the end before I got out of them, I was just like, man, this is, this is not, you know, fun anymore. And just kind of, you know, they require so much more time and more effort and more work. And it's just, I was, I, that's when I kind of decided it was time to, it was time to, to get out of them. You know, I wanted to focus on snakes, especially chondros. Right. And it was just... I think a lot of people though they struggle to kind of to to realize that and actually do it, and so instead they just suffer through it and post their pictures for you know Instagram and Facebook and that's yeah, kind of my issue yeah. with Instagram and stuff as a whole is like and I don't just people do it you know post pictures and stuff just for the attention they can get whether they actually enjoy it or not is one thing but I don't know that's yeah yeah it's getting absolutely. crazy. <clears throat> you know, it, it uh, one thing for sure is that it's been uh, with that switch over. You know, on the forums, I don't, I don't know how long you've you've really been into it. Um, you know, but back in the forum days, like you were kind of guaranteed that anybody who took the time to post on that stuff was, you know, legitimately into it and interested in it, yeah. and like that's all they thought about. But now it's kind of hard to separate. You know who who's really into it who's just kind of looking for attention because they've got a cool cool animal like you know they buy like a dragon snake have no idea what they're doing and but <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna get thousands of likes on instagram yeah. mm-hmm. you know it's hard, hard to separate the real people from the from the people who are exactly. just in for that sort of thing and I've talked about the forum thing before, because I mean, I, I I was never really active on any. Like I used to be, you know, back in the Morelia Pythons days. Uh, you know, I had an account on there. I had an account on MVF. I just I never really posted. I was always just kind of a lurker, and that's how I am in the groups now. Um, right. But I really think there was there was sort of a filter with forums to where if somebody really wanted to be on there, you actually had to go through the process of registering. You know, confirming your email, even though as simple as all that stuff was. It that like that kind of separated people from the ones who actually wanted to join and were actually interested in what was going on and the ones who weren't. But with Facebook and it now being just as simple as, you know, the join group button and then you have free reign, I feel like that's that's sort of what divided the forums from the people that were actually invested in it. And then Facebook, which is just the folks that are there to ask a question and leave. <clears throat> yep. But Yeah. It's unfortunate, but it's. I think it's a natural progression of just the internet and where things are now. Yeah. As yeah, soon as the group things, as soon as the group <laughs> things started taking off, I was like, man, this is. This is going to hurt a lot of the forums, and I mean, it was bound to happen at some point. You know, we couldn't have expected forums to survive forever. It just wasn't. Wasn't really. Feasible. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I think I think a lot a lot of the problem with it too is there's just so many of them and. You know, it's hard to really keep straight who's, you know, like I said before, who's who's legitimate, who's not. Yeah. You know, and, you know, at, at this point, 
you know, me personally, I just kind of ignore most people's posts unless, you know, they post often and, and it's obvious, you know, what they're doing or, or what experience they have, or if it's one of the older, older people that I've known for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, other than that, you kind of have to ignore it because I just don't have the time. Yeah. And that's, we talked about that too. when we were messaging back and forth is like, you notice the guys that are, that have been in the hobby the longest and have the most experience are often the most, you know, the quietest when it comes to posts and groups and stuff like that. And, you know, the more, more time I spend in groups, which I'm really not in a lot now, I, I ended up leaving a bunch of them cause I just, it's exhausting to just watch just the, the chaos and people just really losing their minds. Uh, but you notice the older guys don't post as much, and I, you know, like I said, as as time goes on, I kind of understand why, and it's I don't really blame them. You know, when you have all these people that are so eager to help people out, even though they may or may not have that much experience, uh, right? You know, what's if they know that someone's going to answer a question that's asked daily in these groups? Like, what's the point of having to pipe up when you already know someone's got it covered? So, it, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, and like you know, like. It, it, if I, like sometimes I'll see a post and I'll, I'll be like, well, I have something something of value I think I can add, but I don't want to deal with all of the, like, the secondary questions from yeah. people who aren't the one to ask the question. So I'll just message them directly, um, kind of like I did with you about yeah. the MI yeah. stuff. Um, it's just it's a much more efficient use of my time, and you actually I think help people out more that way. Definitely. And you've you talked about that a little bit. What's been your experience with the the maternal incubation as far as like how many how many females have you done it with and how was how did that work out for you? So I've done it with two females. Uh, one was the first one was about uh, was it? probably like two thousand four two thousand five around there. Um, she. Uh, I didn't know it at the time because I just kind of left her alone to do her thing, but she ended up having a whole bunch of slugs and there was one fertile egg mm-hmm. in the clutch. Um, and I, I checked on her about mm, halfway through and kind of could see some slugs in there. And so I decided to pull her thinking, you know, it's probably just all slugs. Why keep wasting my time with this? Yeah. Then there was that one fertile egg. Um, it ended up hatching, but it was a, it was a pretty small run. Um, looking back, I think it just exited the egg too early. Um, but you know, at that time I was like 17 or 18 and that was, you know, not, not nearly as much information back then as there was, there is now. Um, so that was kind of how that went. Um, you know, she, it, it was a Biak type, um, that I raised from like a red yearling, um, you know, pretty obviously wild caught looking back on it now. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, she, she wrapped the nest or wrapped the eggs fine. Um, sat in there fine. No issues with that. It was more just me getting nervous and not knowing any better and, you know, seeing a few slugs and overreacting basically. I think if I would have left her, that one egg probably would have hatched just fine. Um, and, you know, another thing I hear about with when people talk about MI and how, how people shouldn't do it is that they're afraid that bad eggs or slugs are going to 
ruin the clutch. And I've had, I've, from my two experience, that's couldn't be further from the truth. The the bad eggs and the slugs they just dry up, yeah, and just turn like hard as a rock, and they're they don't affect anything. Um, and the second one was last year. Um, it was a uh, biak to a biak sarong or a biak. It looked like a biak, but it was sold to me as a biak sarong as an adult. So I don't know. Regardless, it was a pure, as they're currently classified, a Zergus, mm-hmm. um, northern animal. Um, and she ended up having uh, 12 fertile and two slugs. And I could tell when she laid the clutch that there was, you know, a bunch of good ones on top. So I just kind of let her be. Um, for her, I moved her. Uh, I, I had an S-Box in the cage, but she was entering it and exiting it. And then around uh, what I estimated to be about a week out, it was like day 42 or 43, um, I moved her to a 14-quart rack just filled with like sphagnum and yeah. I threw a towel over the top of the tub. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just kept that at 84. And she laid in there and did fine, trapped the clutch fine. I think she kicked out one one good egg that um, I wasn't able to hatch, so I'm sure there was some reason she kicked it out. Um, and yeah, she she did pretty good up until uh, I want to say it was like day 34, 35, somewhere in there. About two weeks left to go. Yep. Um, and then she just kind of like loosened up and looked like she was going to abandon the, the clutch. So I pulled it and threw him in the incubator. Um, I'm not sure how long exactly she was loosened up on the clutch at that point. Um, but the eggs were, were not up to, you know, a normal temp. They were, mm-hmm. I want to say they were like 78 or 80 degrees. Um, which shouldn't shouldn't impact them too right. much. It shouldn't be immersive. but you know who who knows. Yeah. Um, so I transferred the mass to the to the incubator. Um, most of them ended up going to term, but a bunch of them left the eggs early, and I ended up with three hatchlings that are alive today. One is with John Irby. Um, he owns the male mm-hmm. and I've got two, two right here that are about eight months old now. Hmm. Um, uh, and you know, like I told you before through messenger, you know, I think, I think part of my mistake and, you know, I think everybody probably has done this at some point. Um, you know, I think I was just messing with her too often or checking in on her too often. Um, and you know, that's part of, you know, the conjure community is in, in particular has a way of making you very paranoid yeah. about everything. <laughs> That's an understatement. And, <laughs> and it, it'll creep it it'll creep in your head without you even thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And I would just you know, you you hear everybody make all these uh, statements about how how bad of a choice it is to do MI and all that and what if she abandons them and all that sort of stuff. 
And, you know, that gets to you. And I, I was just checking on her a lot. And I think that might have been part of what contributed to, you know, what, whatever that was that happened yeah. the, the last couple of weeks. And how often um, were you checking on her, though? Like, how, what, it, like, what kind I, of... I, honestly, I, I don't even really remember. I okay. just know it was, it was fairly often. And if you were, um, if you were doing it I again, how often you would be, how, how, how often would you be checking on her now? If, say, if you had bred another female and you were doing MI, what would you do differently? I would probably poke a little bit when I saw they were laid, just to make sure that it wasn't a clutch of, you know, mostly slugs. Right. And if it was mostly fertile, at least from what I could see, not open it until like day 47 to check in there, uh-huh. <laughs> I, I wouldn't look at it at all. You know, and I, I also mentioned, I, I don't know where I saw it. Might have been, it might have been one of Dan Mullary's videos, or it might have just been a picture I saw. I can't remember. But I know, you know, at, at some of those farms, like in Indo, they just they have these things in like little styrofoam boxes yeah. they're all covered up completely sealed and they just have them in stacks yep and they don't touch them you know and that's probably how I'd, i would do it now you know i think i think most of those concerns over females leaving has very little to do with the female um not do not being able to do what she's supposed to do yeah, I think it's more, just... more keep keep her I don't think we give the animals enough credit. Like they know what they're doing. You know, oh, this is sure. something they've been doing for millennia. This isn't anything new. This isn't, you know, it's not like we can't trust them to lay these eggs. Like anything that would cause a failure on the part of MI is going to be on us and not the snake. Cause the snakes, they know what they're doing. And I feel like yeah. everyone's just yeah, like, for sure. for sure, you know, the female's going to lay and then it's like, Oh my God, she's going to abandon it. And I know it. And it's like, you just the green trees are just anxiety inducing you know and it's so funny because i think it's, a, a, it's really not it's really not them though it's the people <clears throat> that seem to be attracted yeah to yeah yeah definitely it's just it's funny because it's just they're really not i tell people all the time because i people message me on a semi-regular basis saying you know hey how hard are green trees and i'm like they're not hard at all as long as you you know give them what they need you know they're not coins yeah. You know they're they're not Bowellans or diamonds either. You know they're they they have these. You know if you stick within these sort of well, parameters of what they what they need in terms of like their natural history and stuff, you'll be fine. But if you overthink it, you're gonna like you, you can overcare them to death. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I've I've never really found you know I've I've been keeping them since 2000. I've never really found the species as a whole to be difficult to keep. Yeah, agreed. My dif- my difficulties have been with breeding, um, you know, and each situation has been different as opposed, you know, as as to why I think it may not have gone um, perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as keeping them alive, they're they're very very simple, and uh, I, I also think we do them a disservice by by simplifying it so much and babying them so much. Yeah. You know, I, like I said before, I'd be keeping mine with live plants. I use organic soil. I use all this different stuff and it doesn't affect them the way that a lot of these people would have you believe where, you know, they need, they need this, uh, hermetically sealed box that's sterilized every day. And Mm -hmm. they're, they're a lot more, 
they're a lot more sturdy than people give them credit for. Yeah, and I'm, me and Jacob were having a conversation about that the other day. I was like, you know, like these things are are a lot tougher than we realize, you know, especially after reading Julander's book. I think that was a conversation we had on THP the other night when we had Julander on. Uh, is these things, they they experience some considerably fluctuating temperatures for the most part, depending on what part of PNG you're looking at. But, like, I just, that's another thing. I don't think we give enough credit. Like, they're they're pretty tough. It's just when you, when you screw up, they're kind of unforgiving, you know, and it's the... I don't know, and that's kind of what I tell people. Like I said, they're not hard snakes to keep. You just got to pay attention to some of the smaller details, you know, unlike a lot of other species where it's like, yeah, a hot spot's somewhere around, you know, 86, 88, whatever. I don't have to worry about it too much, you know. It's just yeah. they, they get overthought yeah. a lot. <clears throat> and I think that ties yeah. into people yeah. just spending as much money on them as they do. They assume, you know, I think they're it's more of afraid of uh, taking that kind of a loss. You know, they just spent... Four hundred dollars on an imported chondro, and then they want to make sure they, you know, like I said, they want to they care it to death. They're they're so worried about it dying that they worry so much that they end up doing too much and killing them anyways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've I've known lots of people, that, you know, in the almost twenty years I've been keeping them there. They'll they'll be all gung ho. They'll get a bunch of animals. They'll keep them for a few years, and then at some point, after they don't have very much success breeding them they get out and they're just like you know it's just you know it's, it's not worth it to keep feeding these things and not getting any return on them and that's that's where you separate you know like i was saying before the, the people who are really into the animals and the yeah, people yeah. who got into it because you know maybe they thought the snakes were cool but it was more the money thing mm-hmm. um and you no know, I, I think i heard like fours say this once i don't remember where it was but it's like it, it you know it's just a big ponzi scheme but there's very very few people making any money off these snakes yeah you know at best they might break even but even that is a rarity you know it was the same thing with tropical fish you know we were doing it on a large scale and even we were barely mm-hmm. barely making any money and eventually the business closed down and that's why i ended up moving yeah, and um, it, like you know, me and Jacob have had plenty of conversations about that, where it's like, man, it'd be so cool to be able to do this full time, whatever. And I know it can be done, but I also know that it's pretty much a pipe dream because it's it, it, it can be done. I'm sure you um, just you got to carry the else? spectrum. You can't just carry snakes. You can't just sell the stuff you like. You know, you got to carry tortoises and lizards and all this. You know, feeders. Like you literally have to span yeah. everything because it's just it's such a niche market as is. That you can't well, just and, carry the stuff you like and expect to to be able to live off that unless you're you know homeless. Yeah, yeah, and for the most part, you're talking about moving volume. And, yeah, yeah. And when you're moving volume, and you're you're caring for that many that many animals. It really does suck the life out of the passion for the thing. Okay. That, when I was when I was maintaining, it was me and I had two people working under me doing most of the husbandry for the fish stuff. And, you know, I was working like 60 to 70 hours a week salaried and we were barely making it. Mm-hmm. And that just, that just kills any sort of interest you have in these things when you're spending that much time on it and you can barely, yeah. barely even take five minutes to just appreciate what, what it is you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think, I think, um, 
think I've heard Barczyk talk about that, and that's kind of why he's moving toward that whole reptile zoo thing. Yeah. And kind of doing less of the commercial breeding. Because it does. It's just, it, you know, there's no way around it. It doesn't matter how passionate you are. It, if all you're doing is changing out water bowls and cleaning bedding, and, you know, you do that 24-7, 365, mm-hmm. get no days off. You know, most people don't think about that. You can't take vacations. Yep. Um, you know, it, it wears on you. Yeah. I didn't go on vacation last year. Cause I had, which was November's when I would have gone and I didn't just because I had seen so many locks with my pairs with my pair that I, that I put together that I, you know, if, if she was going to ovulate, I was really worried that I would miss it within that, that week long, you know, period that I'd be gone and, and some other work stuff. So I didn't go just for that, that reason, but <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's definitely hard to make ends meet when you're when you're rolling on a scale like that, and then you you know it's just there's so much to it that people don't realize. Yeah, it's yeah. not nearly and as simple as as they think it is. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely not for everybody, and um, you know it it goes to show what it really is when people that have been doing it for such a long time like. Like Barcheck and others, you know, eventually they like this just isn't isn't worth. Mm-hmm. It's not the juice isn't worth the squeeze anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Now, as far as with your keeping them in your your chondros and natural setups, have you kept yours in tubs, and have you noticed a difference between the like the behavior wise of the of the two? Um. Yeah. So I mean, I I've kept them simply before. Like I like I have a. Um, I have a pretty stellar pair of arus that I'm acclimating now, um, and I keep them on paper towels pretty much right now, mm-hmm. just because I I want to be able to see, you know, any any sort of creepy crawlies that yeah. come out, um, just so I know kind of when when treatments uh, been successful. Um, you know, I'll eventually have fecals run again, but um, for now, kind of just want to see what's going on, um, but I'll eventually move them to, to uh, you know, so, something different. Um, as far as the tubs go, um, you know, I, I mostly just raised the babies up in those just just for space sake. Mm-hmm. But I've raised baby chondros in in you know normal size enclosures like a, you know. Um, like I have these 16 by 16, I think they're like 21. Um, I've raised raised babies up in cages that size, but I'm also raising them in you know kind of cages with you know plants and cover and all that. Yep. And I think I think people kind of confuse the reasons why tubs work better for this stuff is because you know if you keep these things in a empty box and it's a little you know, a little baby, they're not going to feel very, you know, mm-hmm. very secure, protected, however you want to say it, in an empty box. And in a tub, you know, especially if you're keeping them in a six quart or like I have these, these, uh, I want to say they're 12 quart. They're like the same footprint as a six quart, but they're eight inches tall. Yeah. You know, they're, they're always covered from the top. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's more the reason why they do so much better in tubs as opposed to 
a bigger cage for a lot of newer people is because they read all this stuff about having to keep them in these sterile boxes with nothing in there and there's no cover mm-hmm. and these things are just just completely exposed and well you know they're all stressed out and it's probably why they don't eat a lot of the time yeah definitely got the odds uh, stacked against you yeah when you're not, so. <laughs> not giving them what they want <laughs> yeah i mean you, you kind of got to understand the psychology of a snake they're they're a very vulnerable creature in the wild um and if you you know a lot of the pictures you see of these things in the wild when they're resting they're under a leaf mm-hmm. or, or or you know they're covered um you know and i'm sure they, they get picked off by birds and all sorts of stuff oh, yeah, pretty especially easily babies. if they're exposed considering how tiny babies are when they come out of the egg they're food for anything right yeah yeah, and they're, they're not exactly hard to spot. They're yeah. pretty bright colored. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I, as, as far as um, being able to maintain them successfully, I haven't found a huge difference as long as you understand what it is that they need to, you know, do well and not be stressed mm-hmm. out and and all that. Um, you know, like, like I've heard a lot of people talk about that – that they can't keep them in cages well, and it, it, it's not the snake and it's not the cage. It, you're 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 providing something wrong with that. Um, you know, you're not providing cover, wh- whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it's not that it's a cage. It's that you don't you're not fully grasping whatever is missing from mm-hmm. that that cage. Hmm. You know, if, if you put a if you put a ball python or something else in a cage and it has no hide you know may not eat yeah kind of kind of the same deal i have uh one baby from luke myers that i got a couple months ago this would have been back in august or september i think and uh it was rocking and rolling with him as far as food goes and then i get it and it completely starts going on a hunger strike and so I kind of look at it from the top, you know, top down or bottom up, whatever, as far as, okay, what, what could possibly be missing or what, what needs to go, like check temperatures, check all this stuff, like just basically start going down the list of potential causes for why it doesn't want to eat. And <clears throat> I didn't have anything in there with it as far as cover or foliage. And so then I've, I've had uh, some little fake plastic suction cup plant that I got from PetSmart and so I put that in there and gave it a few days and then I tried it again and it started started kind of coming back and now I took it away at one point because I was like okay it's eating regularly now no problem it doesn't need it the thing kept fall like kept going into the water bowl and I you know it was probably right. making the water gross and so I was like whatever so I pulled it out and then it stopped eating again and so then I took it and I put it back in and of course we started nailing food again so now i just keep it in there full time but even something as small as that because i mean even with that in there it's still like it's not it's not a ton of foliage to where i have to like literally dig through it to find it it's you know it's right there but i think even something as small as that you know makes a difference yeah i mean some something that simple it has nothing to do with heat it has nothing to do with humidity you know it's more of a um uh, psych- psychology, animal animal behavior mm-hmm. solution. You know, and I, don't, I don't think we give these things enough credit. You know, they're 
just because they sit there and, you know, they look like they're not thinking, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of a method to the madness, I think. And they, they know what they want and they know what they're doing a lot of the time. Um, you know, it goes, goes back to that student of the serpent type thing. Definitely. You know, what, you know, and, and people always talk about animals will always go to the highest perch. And I think that has more to do with them trying to seek cover because they're the highest perch is close to the top of the cage. Mm-hmm. If you have an empty cage, you know, that's the only cover that's available. I don't even know that it's necessarily the highest one. I always think they just go for the thinnest one. Cause I used to, yeah, I used some, to rock. Sometimes. Yeah, I used to rock like the. Uh, what was it? I think I was rocking one inch perches in my adult that I had my pair in my adult PVC cage. That's a four footer. And then I was talking to Harlan, or I was reading something in MBF or one of the groups, and they were talking about, oh, go with, uh, you know, half inch or three quarters. So I tried that, and well, I, there I had two perches in there. One of them I put half inch. And one of them, I kept the one inch, and they instantly were gravitating to that half inch uh, on a regular basis. So definitely, uh, I think there's something to to that. And I know emeralds are pretty similar in the, in the fact that they, when they're found in the wild, they're usually on a ridiculously thin branch. And it kind of yeah. makes sense because when you have more surface area like that, kind of putting pressure on the spine and the organs and stuff, the way they sit, you know, it it, it makes sense to me why they they naturally go with something a little thinner. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Cause even uh, in my male's tub right now that I just separated, he has one of those dragonfly perches from Brahms, and he mm-hmm. loves that thing. He doesn't doesn't even sit on the PVC pipe that it's on. He just stays on that dragon perch pretty much full time now. He loves it. Yeah. Shout yep. out to David. Yeah, I mean, mo- most of my males will go to the the uh, heat panel cord and they <laughs> like to sit on that, but. They'll come down at night and they'll get in their their hunting hunting spot. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean that that's another thing is they they will move if you give them give them some stimuli and some reason to move. Mm-hmm. Um, but if if you keep them in a in a pretty bare small box, you know, what what reason do they have to move? Right. And then, you know, after talking to Jewlander the other night, too, I kind of made me think more because he was talking about chondros and, uh, you know, them moving when they start getting hungry, they start to change their, their, you know, hunting positions at night and stuff like that. And the more I thought about that, when they have more space like that to move, where I guess, like, say that four-foot PVC I have my pair in, my female right now, and granted, I ho- I'm hoping to have an ovulation here soon, uh... She moves back and forth all day long between the hot end and the cold end. She's just constantly moving. And I think about that, and I'm like, even that little bit of exercise is still better than what they probably would get in a regular two-foot cube. Yep. And so it kind of made me think more, like, if I'm going to keep adults, I might want to look more into keeping them in these longer cages like this where they're forced to use that gradient. Because like I said, man, all day long, like every time I walk in the room, she's she's either on the hot end or the cold end. It's pretty rare that she stays in one for you know, most of the day. Right. And so she's, like I said, she's just always moving. I was like, after talking to Julian, I just thought about, it. I was like, man, we should probably be using longer cages like this with these things. If we want them to be more active and not, you know, sedentary all day at the same place. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, that's, that's one of the reasons I kind of 
push back on that whole ambient heat movement yeah. is because you're giving them even less of a reason to right, move. Right. And uh, unless you're going to keep them in a, in a very large enclosure um, where there might be, you know, maybe the top is 84 and the bottom's 80 if you're doing mm-hmm. ambient because heat, heat rises, maybe that would give them a reason to seek out something different. But, you know, I, I just don't. It seems like giving them more of a reason to yeah, more incentive not do to not move, right? Is not the way to go. Yeah, I mean, I don't have any evidence to support that, but that's just kind of my. No, I mean it makes sense. Initial thought. My um, other female's in a cube, and she moves at night a little bit. She'll change perches, but she's in one of those sharp horn with the three perches in it, and uh, right. She really she loves that top perch, man. She doesn't really like to move from it too much, and. But the other female, like yep. I said, she's just back and forth all day long on that that four footer. Yep. So it's really got me thinking about maybe rocking those more. And yeah, they do take up yeah. more space, but that goes back to what we talked about in the beginning of smaller collections. You know. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that, and like I said, that's kind of where I'm moving to. I'm I'm probably going to end up just keeping two or three pairs, and I want to keep them in like. Um, I've got kind of got it all written down and planned in my head, but mm-hmm. I'm yet to actually do it. I'll probably do it after I move. But I want to, you know those big like Rubbermaid troughs that people use for like monitors and stuff. Yeah. I want to get one of those and use it as the base, and plant like you know like a ficus tree or something in there. Oh yeah. And then build build kind of a frame around it and make it like, you know maybe like six or seven foot tall mm-hmm. by like by like three by two or three by three and give them some like real serious vertical space yeah as much as you can give them in you know a normal size realistically room. right yeah but i you know one one thing i also don't buy is this argument that just because they're not in the wild there's there's no reason to try and emulate the wild mm-hmm. you know that uh, they're genetically ingrained a, to do what they do, whether they've been there or not. Well, it's yeah. a, it's just such a lazy way of keeping and thinking. It, you know, it's just kind of justifying not trying to give them the best possible space you can give them. Mm-hmm. Um, and just because they stay alive in a cube and maybe they breed in a cube, you know, I would venture to guess that most people in this community probably don't don't love factory farming, but you can't argue that they don't produce a crap load of crap load of animals that way. Mm-hmm. Doesn't make it right. Yeah. So no, no, we'll see. Maybe I'll kill all my animals and I'll be proven wrong, but I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> now, what do you as far like with your your setups, them being you know naturalistic and everything like that? I'm assuming you you probably don't miss them nearly as much as everyone seems to think you have to do with natural setups. Because I feel like when like when people think naturalistic vivaria, they're like dart frogs where there's very little airflow, there's a ton of humidity, and it's just wet all the time. And it's like you know I don't are you do you have springtails well, in there? Are you having like microfauna? You know what's the kind of give us the run? Yeah, that? I, I I've got microfauna in there. Um, it's more to keep the kind of mold fungus population mm-hmm. from getting out of control as opposed to the the actual feces from the snake. Yeah, I do. I do spot clean um, as it happens, just because I don't have 
I don't have the microfaunal population to take care of that stuff mm-hmm. uh, quickly. Um, as far as misting and humidity, that's another thing that's kind of been confused, in my opinion, within the hobby. Um, misting does not equal humidity. Misting is a very inefficient way to increase humidity. Mm-hmm. So I have, you know, like I said, I have an evaporative. Uh, humidifier in my room and I have a lot of ventilation on my cages so the uh, uh, luckily I'm able to I have like a, a separate room that I keep all my animals in yeah and that, and the humidifier keeps that around 60 to 70 percent um, keeps all the plants looking great mm-hmm. you know the animals aren't wet it's just it's water vapor in the air um, but it it makes it so that they don't have to constantly fight that dry air. Mm-hmm. Um, can they live? Can they live in dry, you know, air? Twenty or thirty percent humidity? Of course. You know, many people have proven that. Um, is it ideal? Probably not. You know, when when an animal breathes, the air is instantly humidified, or at least the body is trying to humidify it so that it's easy on the lungs. Mm-hmm. And when you're keeping it in a dry environment, it is it is increasing the rate of dehydration of the animal, because that that's how chemical gradients work. The water from in the tissue is going to try to go out to the air. Yeah. So, I mean, can they live that way? Sure. Should we strive for better? I think so. Yeah. So that's why I do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do, I do missed animals here and there. Um, but mostly it's just kind of a cycling tactic. You know, like this time of year, I'm not really missing a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Maybe in a shed, just to get the animals yeah. to a little I mean, bit that's more. Yeah, that's when I miss mine the most is when they're going into a shed cycle. But other than that, I really don't I don't mess with mine. But being in South Carolina, you know, humidity is rarely an issue. Right. For most um, of the year. And then, you know, I, I do have plants in there, so I water those. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I've... I've never had a snake get an RI from misting it. Mm-hmm. You know that that's I think yeah. is a big. I don't buy into that either. Thing. The you know I think a lot of people don't realize, especially people that are kind of newer to the hobby, is like respiratory infections are a symptom of a bigger problem. You right. Know, they're an indicator that there's something else going on, and it just happens to be something else you got to deal with. You know, they right. think, oh, if I miss my green tree too much, you know, it's just magically going to get an RI. It's like, no, if, if, the, the immune system's already having problems if you're getting an RI coming in. Like, there's there's something compromising that already. So there's a much bigger issue. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's almost certainly always a husbandry issue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when, when people get these things cultured, it's almost always something that's always present. It's not like some new novel. Right, right disease um you know i don't i don't buy either that it's that nido is completely to blame because that's probably been around forever Mm -hmm. and most of our snakes probably have it and whether it's uh deadly or not probably has to do with a lot of other circumstances yeah um so that's what's always something too that I'm always super curious to hear about people's opinions on that and kind of what the deal is because I you know after talking to Harlan and some other people I'm, I'm a firm believer as well that it's not anything new like this is something that's been around you know longer than we have as a species 
Well, it's, al- it's, it's almost certainly not in anything new. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, things like that don't just pop up. Right. If, you know. Um, but if you don't know, if you don't know to look for it, then you're not going to find it. Mm-hmm. And only recently somebody has looked for it, um, as far as I understand. So, um, and they happen to find it and, you know, one, one of the major concepts of science is correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation. Yeah. And I, I think there's a lot of other factors involved in why some of these animals get ill and why right. some don't, um, you know, and take like, you know, Buddy's, uh, Buddy's animals, he had some that came back positive, but none of them ever showed symptoms. Mm-hmm. So why are, you know, uh, basically what I'm getting at is we may be trying to solve a problem that isn't, doesn't necessarily exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I doubt that we're ever going to really get rid of the virus. So we might as well try to figure out what other right. factors like, what around, is it? Yeah. around it are really triggering it to be so virulent. Yeah, what is it that's killing, you know, these animals and not these animals? Because, you know, we had, it wasn't that long ago. It was like, what, last year, the year before last, where there was kind of the big panic, quote-unquote, where, you know, people were like, oh, I got Nido. And then someone else at the same time was like, oh, yeah, me too. And then they were like, well, what do we do? And it was kind of like, well, there's nothing you can do. But yeah, if, I mean, if the snake's there. asymptomatic, like, I don't know. If, if you can't do anything about it, then but your right. animal's well, fine yeah I mean I, I had people kind of uh, friends that some of them tested some of them didn't and some of them that tested came back positive and they were freaking out and I'm like and they were asking if I was going to test and at, at to this point I haven't because I don't have any anything that has given me any reason to yeah. they're not symptomatic for anything and I simply asked well how does that knowledge change your keeping behavior? Exactly, it doesn't. So what what what's the point in freaking out about like it? If you had um, not gotten the test done, and you didn't yeah, know, if, you would have just kind of carried on. And there's nothing you can do about it anyway. So kind of like that just puts you right back to where you kind of started. Right. Um, so uh, I don't fault anybody for wanting to have that knowledge. Um, but for me, I would like to see. Uh, I'd like to see a little bit more information developed and I like you know that that Ian and all those people are are gonna support some research on it yeah. maybe we can get some more answers about it um, but I'm just kind of uh, watching watching closely and mm-hmm. seeing seeing how it evolves before I start freaking out about anything that doesn't seem to be giving it. you know maybe I don't have it in my collection but uh, even if I do I'm not having any issues mm-hmm. as a result of it so, um, I think everybody kind of just needs to calm down a little bit. It seems yeah, like a lot of people are. That's the um, way I kind of feel wait, about it. Just, just wait for a little bit more information that's more concrete. Can't panic over things you don't know about. Right. But I was, yeah. you know, I had asked around about it, and I was kind of advised because I was like, should I get my stuff tested? And I was kind of told, like, like you, you one I got I was told yes by some people and then I was told no by other people and the people that said no pretty much said on the basis of okay so you get a test that comes back positive then what right and it was going like, <laughs> okay good point like you know if they're, and and they're so fine. And, and then you know some some people may say well yeah but you can separate those animals out that are positive 
But then, then the other what? caveat is the other caveat <laughs> is that a a neg one negative test or even three negative tests doesn't necessarily mean you have a negative animal. Yeah, that's what I, that's it, what I was also told. So, so I you know I could see if you have an animal with symptoms, testing it because why not? Um, but if there's if there's no outward symptoms, then wh- why are you looking for a problem that doesn't exist mm-hmm. uh, at, at this point? At least is my kind of opinion on it. Yeah. Um, well, hopefully we'll have some sort yeah. of answers here soon. Uh, yeah. Currently, with the Southeast Carpet Fest auction, I think as of this morning, Ian was saying we're up to like over eleven grand in uh, in money raised so far. Um, which we're going to surpass the 12K that they made last year at Southeast Carpet Fest, which this year it's all going to Nidovirus Research. So I think that'll that'll help out a lot. I know a lot of that equipment and stuff they use is expensive, so I don't know how much it'll help, but I guess anything's better than nothing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, at, at least if we can kind of get the ball rolling and mm-hmm. kind of uh, get some of these uh, these researchers to to see a little bit of money come in and maybe mm-hmm. get excited about it. Maybe in future events, people can continue to raise money for those projects and yeah. it, you know, it snowballs. Um, well, you know, I kind of, if I, it's definitely an uphill battle for the people that are actually doing the research. Cause if you're going to go to, you know, any institution that you work for and say, Hey, I need a, I need some money to look into this. Um, there are these snakes with this virus that we don't really know anything about and there's a very small percentage of people actually keeping them but we need you to give us thousands of dollars if not more to look into it well I I would assume they'll probably assign it to some grad student who's looking for for a thesis or something, mm-hmm. something to that effect and um, you know I, I don't think there's a whole I, I could be wrong but I don't think there's a whole lot of selling somebody has to do on that no, it just it's seems some, like they're somebody's would... in they're interested in taking up that that project. It seems and, like there will be bigger fish to fry, but I guess in that context, yeah, it makes more sense. Yeah. Well, well, if somebody's giving you money for it, then I don't, I don't see why they would be opposed to seeking seeking knowledge, whether mm-hmm. the subject is lucrative or not. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I'm a college dropout, so I can't say shit. <laughs> <laughs> I was a biology major for three semesters. Yeah. Well, I've I've got a bio degree, and um, it's been an interesting road to try and uh, make a living out of it. Where did uh, you go to school? Millersville University in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. Cool. Uh, pretty small school. Mm-hmm. Um, I I, I kind of wish I had gone back. Or at least waited more. Like, after graduating high school, I kind of wish I had waited before you know jumping into college because i got out of high school or graduated that you know for that summer and then come august it was time to jump back in and i i felt like the same i just you know i I, in high school i did pretty well at just kind of paying attention and passing and i assumed i could carry that over into college and was horribly wrong (laughs) so yeah yeah after a while i just i told my parents i was like i'm done wasting your money i'm just not into it it wasn't my thing but you know now i feel like if i had gone back it probably uh i'd probably be much more devoted to it and actually interested in half the stuff we were learning yeah yeah the the first couple years can be hard to get through because it's very very general Mm -hmm. um 
general concepts that you definitely have to learn, but uh, they're not the the most interesting if you've already got an interest in something. Yeah, that was and, my problem. You know, is in, in my in my last couple of years of college, I was taking you know animal behavior classes mm-hmm. and marine bio classes and stuff that was much more geared towards my interests. Yeah. That was the issue for me. It was like, I don't want to do any of this stuff that I have zero interest in. Like, I want to do all the cool stuff and none of the stuff that's not. Yeah. (laughs) It's not how college works, so here I am. Yeah. I know Luke Myers. You're friends with Luke, right? Or you talk to him at all? Uh, talked to him a little bit, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's he's currently doing, I think he was just doing an animal behavior class. He's been taking all kinds of cool classes. He's in California and... He's enjoying it, but he seems like the kind of guy that he'll get a kick out of just about anything. You know, he can find some way to be interested <laughs> in it, you know, some some way or yeah. other. But. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's definitely a lot of interesting stuff you can take, particularly in, like, your junior and senior year at a lot of different schools. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, can, it, unless you have a very specific direction, it can be hard to make a living with a degree like Definitely. That. I think now yeah. more than ever too, you know, I, I, I've always wondered how difficult it is. Like to me, I'm of the opinion that if you're in a, like you're majoring in a science, you really got to swing for the fences. Like a four year degree isn't really going to cut it anymore. Like it used to. Yeah. You know, especially bio yeah. and marine. Like I live on the coast here in South Carolina. And so everyone goes to college for marine biology. Then they graduate and they realize like finding a job that actually involves you doing the stuff you went to school for is you know they're almost non-existent unless you work for dnr or something and those guys don't get paid a whole lot so it's i don't know yep and they and they all start at about thirty thousand a year so yeah you're, you're staring at a bunch of school debt and no way to pay for it yeah so what are your plans for the year as far as conjures go are you going to be breeding anything or are you just going to wait until after the move what's the what's the um, plan? I may I may do a pairing next year. Um, I'm kind of focused on the move and um, maybe trying to get a couple of those bigger enclosures built mm-hmm. and keep keep a couple pairs together year round. Um, I worked at uh, Lowry Park Zoo in Tampa for about a year, mm-hmm. and we kept the caracondros outdoors in Tampa. Um, together and that that i've i've never really stopped thinking about that in a way you know that i want to keep them that way yeah um because it, it was just a lot more interesting to me um so yeah i'll probably just focus on on trying to to do that stuff and you know i'd like to start getting into some really cool plants you know different um png native orchids and mm-hmm. um ant plants and maybe some of the penthes. Um, see if I can successfully keep those with chondros. That'd be a pretty interesting, fun project to try. Aside from the pothos, what do you what do you have in there now? Um actually now that I look around, it's mostly just pothos right now. Mm-hmm. I've tried a few a few other different plants and they just didn't provide the cover that I was looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's mostly just pothos right now, but if I can get if I can start um, working with some bigger enclosures, I can my uh, my options will open up quite a bit. Definitely. 
Pothos are perfect for that stuff, man, because Pothos will grow in a freaking dark closet. I think if you sh- you, you yeah. could grow Pothos on Mars if you wanted to. Yeah, and they they just have a really good growth pattern. Like they'll they'll grow up anything. They mm-hmm. have big leaves. Um, they're really kind of perfectly suited for that, especially in kind of smaller enclosures. Yeah. Well, I'll have to have you send me some pictures again so I can post them on the uh, on the, the podcast page to give everybody an idea what yeah. you're, what you're talking about. Uh, what are your temperatures? Yeah, sure. What do you keep your temperatures at with those? Uh, normally the hot spots are around 84. Okay. Um, I usually do a night drop all year. Um, in the summer it's to like 80 in on the warm end. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my ambient room temperature is like 75, 76. So it, it is whatever it is on that, on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the winter I'll go, I'll just drop a couple of degrees at night unless I'm cycling. Um, and then I'm for breeding and I don't ever really go below 72 or 73 right. when I'm cycling. Um, 73 is kind of where I get some great activity out of the males and then 72 I'll drop to after I've they've bred for a little while. And then that's like kind of the final nail in the coffin that'll get that female to go off food and, and really kind of kick in the gear. And which, what, what time for like, what part of the year are you usually doing that? Uh, well, prior to this past year, I always kind of did it, tr- you know, the traditional way in the fall, winter. Mm-hmm. Um, this year being in Colorado, I kind of tried something different. Um, cause we're, our nighttime temps are pretty low most of the year, yep. say maybe like July and August or June, July. Um, so this year we have, we have like monsoon rains late August, mm-hmm. mid, mid to late August. So I started cycling during those and that seemed to work out pretty well. Um, as far as breeding activity, uh, and then that, this one egg that I'm incubating now was the, the result of that. Um, so it wasn't completely successful, but I did like the activity that I got. Um, there may just be some other tweaking that I, that I wasn't recognizing that I would need to do. Mm-hmm. Try it again. Um, but I won't get to try it again cause I'm moving <laughs> in a couple months. Yeah. So I'll get to figure it out again. Um, but I will, I will say that, um, I, I keep the room humid pretty much all year. Um, and the misting that I do is just in the summer, just to kind of simulate a rainy season. Yeah. And it, it brings up the humidity a little bit, but um, I don't really get any of that like clicking or wheezing or any of that sort of stuff associated with breeding and cycling mm-hmm. that a lot of people seem to do. Um, and as, as a lot of a lot of my other theories, I don't have any way to really prove it, but anecdotally in my collection, I I attribute it to keeping the relative humidity, um, you know, decently high. Yeah. Um, because their lungs and their respiratory tract is not getting taxed. Like it, you know, it would, if I wouldn't be doing Mm -hmm. that, you know, here in Colorado, it's like 20% humidity in the winter, um, for the most part. And, you know, I, I can feel it and I'm fairly well acclimated to it. And I wasn't, 
I didn't evolve in the rainforest to Papua New Guinea for millions of years. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm sure that I'm sure that they don't appreciate it either. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. Condors. Yeah, you know, I mean, like, you know, another another way of explaining it to some people is, you know, think think if I if I if if you were like a prisoner, and you had to stay in some, you know, uh, some little room with very little air ventilation, no access to sunlight, and it was like 20% humidity every day. You'd probably live, but would you feel great? Probably not. Yeah, there's a very big difference between between surviving and thriving. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I, think, I think we're, by constantly simplifying, 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 we're kind of doing them a disservice and, mm. um, yeah, we're just we're just not really doing them doing them justice, in my opinion. Definitely don't get much better as far as a display animal goes on a green tree. So yeah, for sure. Never have to worry about them not being visible. <clears throat> Unlike my three dart frogs that I never see. <laughs> what what kind of dart frogs do you have? They're uh, Phyllobates vitatus. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I got three, I, I, I got w- three of them in there. I I honestly they could all three be dead and I wouldn't know it, but <laughs> the fruit flies are disappearing, so at least one of them is eating. I, yeah. Are I they, never are see they still them. pretty small? Yeah, yeah, they're still youngsters. Yeah, the males have a really really loud pretty call. Mhm. I play it on my phone sometimes to see if maybe they're they're big enough to start yeah. doing if, it. If you get a, mer- uh, a mature male in there when he gets a little bit bigger, you'll know he's alive mm-hmm. for sure. <laughs> they're just, they're, they're so uh, shy. And I was talking to my buddy Alex Minky about them because he has some. He's like, dude, I got a tank with six of them in there and I never see them. He's like, they're fine. Like, they're yeah. in there. They're fine. Don't worry about them. You just, you're not going to see them. Yeah. I I did dark frogs for, for quite a number of years too. And yeah, especially the thumbnails, like you'll, Mm-hmm. Sometimes we go like a month without seeing them. They're like, I, I hope I'm not just feeding an empty cage, but yeah. <laughs> they, they seem to disappear. I have another vivarium built and planted and going, and I'm going to get some uh, Vanzellini in it at some point. So those yeah, will be my cool. first thumbnails. I'm enjoying them, man. They're those, they're, you know, the vivariums are a blast to build. You have to take your time with them, which I think is kind of nice because then you have time to think about what you want to go in it and. Uh, I don't know. They look cool. I got my my Phyllobates tank is in here, and it looks it's in the living room, and it looks awesome. It's a nice conversation yeah, piece. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there's there's kind of an art to it too. Definitely. They're not they're, they're not all created equal. Everybody can make a uh, make a two foot cube with paper towels in the bottom, but not everybody can make a really nice mm-hmm. display rare. Kind of have to have an eye for it. Yeah. Well, you doing it has definitely kind of piqued my interest a little bit, and especially talking to you about it a little more, and uh, I might it might be something I'll I'll be looking into doing in the near future. Yeah, so. I mean, I I I I don't really I I try not to preach too much about it, but the one thing I do push back on when when I talk to people about this sort of thing is I've definitely never lost a snake to keeping them with plants or soil mm-hmm. or missing. None of those three have ever caused any of my snakes to become ill. Um, I think stagnant air, along with that, 
is where a lot of people go wrong. Yeah, that's that's a recipe for uh, for disaster. But I don't know. I mean, we see that debate so much on Facebook, and it's like, how many of you have actually tried keeping tubs and actually tried keeping you know naturally? And it's yeah, the majority yeah, it's, probably it's haven't. Like everyone has their way and they enjoy it. Like I keep pretty simple. I keep tubs. I keep paper towels, and that's just because that's what's been working for me. You know, I haven't had that many issues with any of my animals. I have had some over the years, especially with the green trees. But granted, I've only been keeping uh, green trees for about two years. But um, I can't really speak on behalf of you know which one's better because I've never kept them that way. So I can only speak right. from, from the the you know the simple paper yeah, towel. I mean, I. I, I can't really speak to which one may be better because I don't really I don't really keep things that simple anymore. But I definitely enjoy keeping them this way much more. Um, and I don't have any any of the issues that often get spread around mm-hmm. as go- as gospel when you keep them this way. Um, so, and I think I think a lot of the people that that talk about it, like you said, have no experience doing it, and they're just kind of regurgitating long, long-held myths, um, you know, that have been perpetuated for for years and years and years. And yeah, there's not a not a ton of evolution in the terms I mean, of how we do I, things. I mean, you never you never go to a zoo or an aquarium and you see these things on display in an empty cube. Do you? Nope. And they don't seem to be having any problems. But I do see them mix dart frog species all the time. And they know they're well, not supposed to do it, but they do it anyways. Well, the, I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing it. As that, that's a whole nother can of worms. But um, if you're if you're throwing out the eggs, then what what are you really hurting? The the frogs aren't going to hurt each other, yeah. especially in some of the, some of the size enclosures that they do it. Right, uh, and that's I, that, from what I've heard. That's the reason that they do that is because they're like, we can't just have five of the you know five leucomelis or something floating around in here. Like people come to see these things, and like this space is well, huge. We got to fill it up. You know, it's got to have and and often in in at least some of the better zoos and aquariums, they're they're putting together species that coexist in the same range. They're not they're not just putting random stuff together. Um, yeah, I, I think I, I think you know it's and since I've kind of delved into the dark frog community and what's necessarily right and wrong, but from what I understand, back in the day, the the main source of that argument was well, if they breed and the eggs hatch, how do you know they're not hybrids? And then if they're hybrids and you sell them, that's going to muddy the waters. Yeah, I feel like you it know, would be pretty of, obvious they, though basically the same argument with carpet pythons right you know why why people a lot of people don't like those being mixed mm-hmm. um, you got your small group of purists and then you got the guys that just want to make cool looking snakes and to each their own yep yeah. yeah yep Personally, I prefer yeah. the, the I'm, a, I'm more of a pure guy. I like the, you know, the pure Darwins and stuff like that. But I do appreciate, you know, the brighter Jags and stuff like that. I can, I can get behind them. Probably not going to buy them, but I like them. You know, they're pretty. Yeah, I've, I've tried to keep a couple of different morphs of different species over the years. And 
I just can't help but look at him and be like, you shouldn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> what are your, what are your, what's your opinion on the, on, on Carpondros? I'm not a fan. No. Only for, only for the fact, I don't, I don't care what anybody does. It doesn't bother me that, they, yeah. that, that some people like them and want to do it. But for me personally, I feel like, uh, I've never seen a Carpondro that looks better than a pure Condro or a pure carpet. Very they good always point. look like a muddy, a yeah. muddy version of the two. Yeah. And uh, unless you're actually trying to pursue some sort of aesthetic um, goal, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't see the me personally. I don't see the point in doing it just for the sake of, you know, hey, I crossed two things that should right. never. Here's a cool thing that I made. Yeah. That's genetically not gonna do well, you know, as far as reproducing and. It just looks cool. Yeah, I mean, like I said, yeah, I can I mean, appreciate them for the novelty of the whole thing, but it's not something I'm gonna go. I'm not gonna go drop a grand on a on a Carpondro or a right. Jagpondro or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, I, you know, and you know, a large part of the reason that I keep my animals the way I keep them is I like I like to try and um, stimulate as natural behavior as I can, and um, you know, I can't afford to travel and stuff as much you know like i can't afford to spend three months in australia just checking out condors in the wild yeah. so it's <laughs> a luxury a lot of us don't have yeah so this is my my way of maybe being able to cut a little slice of that out and you know observe it in my own house mm-hmm. um yeah and so i i like i have a few designer animals that are you know as we now understand it and not that it's been any secret uh that there's definitely at least two different species of of chondros um you know maybe more who knows if, you know maybe some of these island forms are are more distantly related than yeah than we thought but um you know they're they definitely have some differences morphologically than some of these different localities, um, or or these pure pure species. Um, you know, I know everybody says you can't you can't call them pure, but you know when you get a wild caught biak, like it looks way. There's some obvious differences between like a wild caught aru. I mean, I've got both definitely right in front of me in my room, and they don't. I mean. Yeah, they're both green, but they're they're pretty different. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what have you? Uh, what have as far as what you've bred? What have you bred in the past, or you know, most recently? What have been your pairings? Uh, Condor wise, yeah. Um, it's mostly Biak stuff. Um, okay. So I've got this. This one egg was a pure Biak pairing. Um, the one last year was a Biak to a quote unquote, you know, Biak Sarong. I, I think it was probably just a Biak, but, um, you know, um, and then previous to that, it's mostly just Biak stuff. Mm-hmm. It's always kind of bit, been my, my main interest. Gotcha. They're enjoyable. They uh, don't get enough credit, man. Everyone kind of writes them off as nasty tempered. Well, and just, cheap just wait and... until. Just wait until they stop importing them, then they'll be five thousand bucks a piece. And yeah, everybody will want them. Yep. I mean, I I have you know this 
this male that I've used in my past few pairings, Tarzan, um, John Irby's animal. Mm-hmm. He's every bit as nice as any calico designer for the most part. I mean, he's he's kind of a yellow-orange, probably 50 to 60%, and then he's got kind of a mossy green with a black flecked baby pattern. Yeah, I and saw one of the neonates you posted on the that red neon yeah, that you had, that's a pretty cool looking baby. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I've got a, a really dark yeah, female that's, you know, I got, there's some animals like, uh, some design animals like, uh, that were crossed with, with the ox that mm-hmm. she looked, she looks pretty similar to some of those things. So, you know, it's, it's kind of funny how some of these things end up looking just as good, if not better, than the designers. But because there's no there's no names attached to it, yeah, people aren't willing to spend the money. Yep. Agreed. Mm. Well, I mean, uh, I've I've got a few designers, and I'm honestly thinking about getting rid of a couple of them just because, you know, they're they're just kind of weird. <laughs> In what way? Yeah. Well, like they just—they don't look like either, like any of the localities. They're some of them are kind of quirky. Mm-hmm. I'm not—I'm not saying that there's anything genetic related with that. Right, but right. That's something me and Luke talked about just, with the last episode was you know how much yeah. uh, with all these design lines and stuff that you know how much diversity do we really have in those that that pool? Right. Nothing against designers; they're awesome. I love them. But yeah, something well, to think uh, about. You know, I, I listened to it, like you guys were saying. You know, we we're kind of in in fairly uncharted territory as far as so we now these are now defi- defined as two different species, mm-hmm. and we've been cro- we've been crossing them back and forth for years and years and years, and there's there is potential that we're seeing, you know, some some sort of impact from all of that. Um, and in the early days, a lot of this stuff was pretty closely bred. So, who knows? Yeah, it's uh, interesting to think about, and I guess the only time will tell. Long, long, long term. Yeah. Yep. But uh, sure. we're closing in on an hour and a half, man. Is there anywhere people can find you? Um, pretty much just Facebook or Instagram. Um. I have a front range arboils page. I don't know if I'll keep that the same name because I'm moving out of the front range, but <laughs> um, it's uh, yeah, what are you gonna front call range arboils. What are you going to call it if you're in Oregon? Um, I don't know. Maybe PDX arboils. Um, I'm moving to the Portland area, but um, I don't know. I'll probably just keep it the same. And, no. But um, yeah, and then I'm you know Brian Fisher on on Facebook. Um, happy to talk to people on there, mostly through messenger. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not too active on the groups as much anymore, but I'm happy to talk to people more privately. Yeah. I appreciate and, the, uh, uh, all the insight you've given me in the, the last couple of weeks and talking to you off and on. I'm glad you came on, man. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Anybody who wants to, chat chondros and throw ideas back and forth certainly don't claim to know a lot but 
I've been watching them for 20 years, so I feel like I've gained some insight. <laughs> I know into... at least something about them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I I know how not to kill them. Yeah, um, there you go. Yeah. So it was a start. <laughs> yep. All right, man. Well, I appreciate it. I'll talk to you later. For sure. Have a good day. Take it easy.